enter the crib. Your strike back sit rep starts in three, two, one. Wait, do we go on zero? Welcome back, Meebers. We are here to talk about episode four. There are spoilers ahead. You have been warned. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Deb. And we are going to do our review. Then we have Dan McPherson stopping by again to explain in his hilarious way why today was not Wyatt's fault again. And then we have our behind-the-scenes facts from showrunner, executive producer, writer Jack Lothian. And then we are so excited... This was one of our favorite guests last year. We have director Bill Eagles back on to talk about this yeah. phenomenal episode and that incredible wonder that they did. Um, so we know you will be excited. So stick around. All right, Deb, what were your thoughts on the episode? Okay, I think I said last episode that it didn't feel fully evolved as a Bill Eagles episode. Like it just was holding back a bit. And so I thought, okay it has to mean that the next episode is just going to be bonkers Bill Eagles. And it was bonkers Bill Eagles. I mean, it was just off the charts, strike yeah. back. It was just, it picked up right where episode three ended and was just balls to the wall action from minute one. And it was, I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was full on action. The like, it was incredible. Some incredible moments from Alin. Uh, yes. Like, Novin just, Ugh. oh, God, does she take a beating? And the fucking plastic bag. Oh, my God. God. damn it. If you guys have listened the to our- The second that plastic <laughs> yeah. came out, I went, damn you, yeah. Jack. That's exactly what I was going to say. He <laughs> mentioned in our preseason that there's a callback, you know, oh. and, and I just knew someone's getting getting Yensened, and, yeah. and oh. God, that was hard. And we definitely we do talk to Bill Eagles about shooting that and, and how difficult that was for everybody, including Alin, because it's a real fucking plastic bag. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of acting going on there. Yeah, but great. Katrina didn't die. Woohoo! So, you know, the Novan Katrina spinoff is still possible. Um, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> we have all added a pungent tempest to our vocabulary. <laughs> A pungent tempest. <laughs> yeah, that was great. God, it was okay. So I will say, <laughs> there was a after the shooting in the in the building where Coltrane comes to the rescue, you know, and he's like sit rep, and Katrina's like sit rep, and I was like here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was one that started at like the fourth word of the show and ended when it went to black. Uh, <laughs> wow. Was this like the ode to the raid or yeah. what? Yeah. I mean, we had little snippets that were clearly kind of an homage to it last episode, but this, I mean, that apartment building, it may not have been 400 stories high, but it sure felt like it if you were the one fighting your way through it. I mean, that was, it was incredible. And I was happy that we didn't necessarily have to see Novin hatchet people to death or machete people to death. But that wander through the building, that entire fight scene with everybody involved. And it's just, it was great. And she was incredible. She was, what I really like about Alin in her fight scenes 
is it isn't just, okay, I punch you, you punch me, that there's real carry through on every punch, yeah. every hit, every movement. She never stops being in the scene. And a, a lot of times in a fight scene, it's like, okay, I took a punch, now I go to the next one. You know, it's just yeah. the focus on the action instead of the acting that goes along with a fight scene. And she's so good at playing every moment of that fight scene mm-hmm. through to its logical end that, you know, you take a hit to the head and it hurts and you're dazed. And we see that with her, which we don't always get in this show or any show. Um, but she's, she's, she's so good in those fight scenes. So, you know, there was a lot to choose from, but it has to be, you know, Novin's whole raid in, yeah. in the apartment. It was phenomenal. And so I will say, because <laughs> I have to, uh, I got the opportunity to go see a panel last week with with Jack Lothian and Bill Eagles and Warren Brown and Paul Bittis. And they, they talked about this scene. They played it and they talked about it a little bit. And it, and one of the things that both Jack and Bill talked about with fight scenes, because that was the whole panel was like how to create like a kick-ass fight scene, um, was that you can't just throw a fight scene in there. It has to like add to the story, right? Right. Alin, she's so tired. She's beat down. She thinks... That she she's was broken. Weak. Yeah, she's she thinks she's broken. She she did break, although I'm with Wyatt. She was buying time, you know. But you know, she just the way when like they're coming up the stairs and she sees more of them and her shoulders just slump oh, and there's just this yeah. like, just her whole body. The way she's fighting is like I don't want to do this anymore. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it was. God, it was amazing. She was incredible this episode. Really, that fight. Yeah, this was Novin's episode start to finish. Yeah. Lynn just owned it. And, yeah. oh, so good. Yeah, I thought it was really smart the way they handled what you said, like, about not needing to see her hatchet those guys. You right. know, but just seeing her disappear and then them come up and be like, holy shit. You know, Fucking hell. Yeah. You're a weapon. <laughs> You're a weapon, kid. Just amazing. God, she was so good. Okay, so your emotional moment of the night then. Wow, there were, for, a, an, for an episode so packed with action, there wasn't a lot of emotion in this episode. I mean, you have to give it to Novin with repeated emotional moments in this episode with, you know, when she breaks and she's so disgusted with herself for breaking. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to Novin just talking about how she didn't want to die. You know, it it wasn't strategy. It wasn't anything. I was, I just didn't want to die. And that whole scene, I I think between her and Wyatt was just brilliant because it was unexpected as well. Like I I didn't expect, I I figured Coltrane was the one that would go to her in that because he's always been the one that's checked in with her emotionally. And it was Wyatt, which, you know, considering where Wyatt's been was kind of unexpected. And I'm going to give a runner-up to Mac and Spiegel and Spiegel's death. Yeah. That, oh, my yeah. God. That's just... That was mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hot cop went down. That was terrible. You know, Warren did really well showing that, you know, Mac takes so much responsibility for the people around him. And it's what would make him a phenomenal officer, you know, because he does. He he wants to protect everybody. He already felt bad, you know, for using the kid, Spiegel, hot cop. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the way he's just he's just like you use me, and and he felt like nothing. And then he stood up 
because he wanted to not be nothing and then he died and it was nothing and mac having to see that whole transition was yeah that was really devastating this was <laughs> this the season jack promised darker and and he is he is delivering He's more than delivering um, oh. which actually leads me into my what the fuck moment which is why it was going to shoot Zarkova. exactly mine as well the kill you know and uh you know he knew why you know coltrane wouldn't say it he said because i know you'll follow orders or whatever but mm -hmm. why it knows you know it's because i'll do it and it's like if you know that about yourself you know that you've crossed those lines you've taken the money you would be willing to do this. Can you reel yourself back in? Or is acknowledging that you've crossed those lines and that you would be willing to do it and acknowledging that you'd be willing to do it and then be willing to do it just lead you further down into the dark and fuck. I, I, that was the first time I've actually sort of hated Coltrane because he did, he put that on Wyatt. He knows, you know, we talked about like him reaching out to Elaine you know, he's reaching out to Mac, but he's fucking with Wyatt's head. And and I I did hate him in that moment for the first time. And and that was hard. Well, it also makes you question the motivation for reaching out to anybody. Yeah. At this point. You know, is he reaching out to Novin because he actually cares about her, he wants to make sure she's okay, or is it just to find one more weakness to use against her? You know where is all that coming from? I mean, yeah. I want to believe it's because he actually cares about these people, which I think he does. But, you know, it also was, there was no reason for someone else to do that. Yeah. He, yeah, he, he could have done it. He was given the order. There's no reason he couldn't have done it. If he really believed that it's mission first, then he would have done it. He didn't have to give that to Wyatt. No. So it was cowardly. It was really, ugh. Yeah. But he also had no reason to disclose that to Chetri. Yeah. I mean, he could have just gone to Wyatt and said, there's a kill order, you're doing it. Yeah. There was no reason for Chetri to know that. If he was going to tell Chetri, then he should have told everyone, but he yeah. didn't. Yeah. So I think he knew that Chetri would tip her off. And so it was... But again, I guess it's that, like, it feels like, even if in the back of his head or subconsciously, he knew the Cheddars would, would tip her off and continue to be safe, he still, Wyatt didn't know that. And he put right. it on Wyatt. And it feels like you're going to look at the guy who is teetering, the guy who is, is, is trying to hold on, and you're going to push him over. And, and that, like, not even reaching out to him, because he's never reached out to Wyatt in the way that he has the others. Right. To, to just leave him, that just felt like, why isn't he being treated as part of the team? Oh, it makes me angry all over again. <laughs> and I'm like, stop fucking with Wyatt. Like he he has this like little tender heart inside of all of this. And we've seen that and like foster that, like find that within him again. And fuck you, Coltrane. Okay, you said that was your what the fuck moment, right? <laughs> Did I? <laughs> I think yeah, you, you agreed, yeah. That he was going to take the shot, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was certainly happy when, when Coltrane had him stand down, and it's like, okay, is, did he do that just because they needed her to get out of the situation? or? But, oh my God, that look that she shoots him yeah. when, you know, he's like, boss, I have the shot. Yeah. 
and she just looks right at Coltrane as she's limping out of that car. Oh, I mean, she knows she's dead. Yeah. And she, like her last act is going to be to just give him that cold stare. Yeah. And then he, he calls it off. Yeah. Like, whoa. I mean, it's so it's quick. So you don't, awesome. you know, and it's such a long shot that you don't, you don't even necessarily know that that's what you've just seen. But if you watch it back, man, she just looks right at Coltrane. Yeah. Oh. So good. And still saves their asses. Yes. Because Zarkova's a badass. Zarkova's awesome. Okay, so predictions, concerns. <laughs> um, yeah, what? I would love to see more of Zarkova. I have a feeling we're probably not going to, but I would. I already miss her. Ooh. I know, right? Um, that the whole like toasting Zarkova scene made me a little nervous when. You know, usually the dead don't drink or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a little creepy. Yeah. Sorry, all you people who don't want us talking about this, but there's way too much foreshadowing going on in these four episodes. <laughs> so, um, and the whole, there's always one last mission. Ooh, that just kind yeah. of left me really nervous. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. I don't know where we're going from here. No. I mean, we have to go get... What we need to find Imperia, yeah. and um, yeah, wow, that was yeah. Yeah, it's dark. It's real dark, and yeah. that's what I was thinking. Is you have all these people who seem broken, broken. They were already the broken toys that got brought together. You know, with Mac being sort of the healthiest of them. Although we'll see how long that holds up. But why it this getting this push? Novan feeling like she's broken after she killed that civilian in the first episode. I mean, Strike Back is generally not a show to heal people. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like, you had at the end, you know, Stonebridge and Scott kind of got, like, a semi-happy-ish ending riding off into the sunset together. I don't know how you get that with Uh these guys. Um, So... I don't know if they're just going to leave us devastated or if they're going to devastate us. Uh, I don't know what the difference is, but I feel like there's a difference. <laughs> Either it's just like all these broken people and it, the show ends or like all these broken people are dead and the show ends. Um, we'll see. You know, sort of how it would be if this were real. Yeah, that right. They would just go on leading their horrible broken lives yeah. if they lived. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's uh, episode four. But damn, what a boomy, you know, there were some awesome oh, explosions. Oh, there were some, yeah. Woo! Kudos, kudos for that apartment building. So raid. good, so good. So, uh, yeah, all right, well, that's it for episode four. Um, stick around to hear from Dan McPherson, your behind-the-scenes facts from Jack, and then an interview with Bill Eagle. Yeah, Bill. We've got Overwatch. Jack's Facts coming in. Welcome back, Meebers. We are here with some exclusive behind-the-scenes episode four, Jack's Facts. Okay. Originally, Danny, a.k.a. my favorite ginger baddie, was going to choke Novin, but the idea of the plastic bag gave it a nice symmetry. (laughs) Good Lord, Jack. To the death of poor Jensen. 
Of course, Novin is unaware of how Jensen died. So as far as she's concerned, she's the first person (laughs) in Section 20 to get the bag treatment. Okay, technically that wasn't a bag that killed Jensen. It was hanging plastic. It's the only time this season that the U.S. and U.K. versions of the show are different. The U.K. version has a few edits to this scene due to network concern over content. Alin went above and beyond the call of duty on this one, which was almost as disturbing to film as it is to watch. Wow. (sighs) That was rough. Oh, I can't believe they're not going to see that in the UK, because that's a really... I mean, it's a terrible scene, but it's a great scene. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. I mean, it's so funny what the different countries will show. Yeah. I mean, granted, I think, isn't that on, like, regular... Yeah, right. Like, regular... That's there versus here. It's, it's, you know... um, Yeah, premium. It's premium, so they can get away with almost anything. Well, really anything. (laughs) (laughs) Except for maybe live murder. (laughs) Maybe. During the stairwell fight, when Noah breaks off and stumbles into the apartment and comes back to finish off the machete-wielding guy, he's taken the opportunity to put a blood capsule into his mouth. So when she repeatedly bangs his head off the wall, he's also spitting blood out onto the wall as well. Blech. <laughs> it's great looking. Gross, but great looking. <laughs> Originally, the Novin one-shot extended all the way to the team coming back and finding her, but episode length issue and pace issues meant that the Section 20 movement up the stairs was eventually chopped down, as sadly the full-fat version ran over time. Okay, you know, Cinemax, this is it. This is our last strike back. You can't give them 30 more seconds. Oh, my God. Oh my god! I don't know how it's to not like you have to make room for commercials. <laughs> okay, y'all. When, Kat- when Katrina walks no. off at the end into the distance, there was a very large man in a very small <laughs> pair of sh- swimming shorts lounging on the rocks in the foreground getting some sun. It somewhat detracted from the poignancy of the moment, so he was removed thanks to the magic of CGI, but there always will be a cut somewhere in the vaults where Katrina's exit from the show is alongside a man quite rightly unashamed to show the body that God gave him. (laughs) Man, Dan, what you won't do to get in a scene. (laughs) Oh, no. That's not what he meant by very large. (laughs) Okay, guys, that's it for Jack's Facts. Stick around for Bill Eagle. On me, back to the crib. We are back to talk to Sergeant Wyatt about the multiple screw-ups in episode four. Come on, screw-ups. I mean, guys. Exactly how many times could you have shot or stopped someone in this episode and you didn't? Well, look, first of all, when you read the press release for this season and they announced the final season of Strike Back is coming back and it's ten episodes long, sometimes you need to miss people, otherwise the final season of Strike Back will be four episodes long. Uh, so your answer is time. Answer, <laughs> Sorry, I missed that, Dan. What was that? Your answer is the answer I always give because it was in the script. It was in the script. Look, look, Wyatt, um, we, we know going into this job that you can be, you can be the worst, best soldiers in the world uh, very regularly. And and we are a lot, you know, and every time Jack writes the line and, you know, Wyatt enters and gets disarmed and they have a hand to hand fight, 
you know, or if it's a Lin, it's, you know, Novan gets disarmed and, and beats up people with a tea towel and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we can do whatever we want with, with whatever we have at hand. But Wyatt, um, he just comes, he just gets a lot of bad, a bad rap. So look, he, he stood up to Coltrane. He sort of had the, the subtextual chat of this is shit and we're following the wrong orders. But thankfully that moment where he chose not to pull the trigger initially on, on Zarkova, uh, took away from the fact that he'd also stuffed up driving in a little bit too late and let Mahir and Zayef get away with Imperia. Uh, and thankfully no one's talking about that. So uh, thanks for bringing that up guys. Um, again, that was kind of why it's fault. Maybe I'll take that one, but my commanding officer, Jamie Bamber had given me a, a far more pressing issue uh, and pressing command, which was to um, take out his former lover. I think there's subtext there. That was a pretty good Jamie Bamber. Stop <laughs> 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 with that. <laughs> Standard McPherson dribble. Oh, what was that sound? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, look, I don't think it was his fault. He was following orders. I mean, if he had a shot and missed and she got away, maybe his fault. But guys, it just just don't judge a don't judge a book book, book by its cover. Don't judge Wyatt by his beard. Don't judge him by this cheery cheery fly by the seat of your pants kind of vibe. You know. Because as we're about to learn in this series, and as we saw in the second half of last year, things take a pretty uh, pretty twisty, turny uh, journey from here on in. But categorically, just following orders, not his fault. It was it was Coltrane that whisked out and went, no, don't do it. So there you go. Not why it's fault. We're not at Xville. Stay with us at the crib. Welcome back, Meebers. We're here to talk about Block 2. With a man who really doesn't need any introduction, um, <laughs> you are very familiar with him by now because he has been with Strike Back since 2011 and has directed many of our most favorite blocks. And we are adding this block to that list as well. So welcome back, Bill Eagles. Hey, it's great to be back. Good to see you guys. Uh, yeah, we're on to a very exciting season. Very, very exciting. Yeah. It's great. So can you talk a little bit about the flavor of this block? Because I think Deb uh, nicknamed it the Raid block oh, yeah. is sort of what she was comparing it to. And oh, it's a wonderful comparison. I mean, I'm sort of slightly embarrassed to be compared to such an amazing bit of source material. But yeah, I mean, we're all fans of the Raid, uh, both movies. Uh, you can uh, imagine the reasons for that. And yeah, we do have a lot of bad guys living in uh, a very sort of dingy edge of town kind of tower block kind of situation. It's more a kind of a big apartment building. Uh, certainly one of our heroes gets gets taken and is looking like she is in a very, very seriously bad situation. Uh, I mean, with that, can I go into the details? I mean, she is gonna, she is gonna go through it. And yeah, she's you gonna can. Go to the edge of the edge of the edge. Uh, will I guys save her in time? Well, you know, kind of maybe, but it's not gonna be easy. Um, and along the way, they get caught up. So the whole, the whole episode takes place in Tel Aviv, which is a real departure for us because we're in a sort of modern European city. And our characters, whilst chasing uh, 
uh, a digital data device, which is, uh, which is terribly important to define, uh, get caught up with a lot of local people, a local taxi driver who's connected to a drug dealing kind of uh, best kind of mentor kind of brother figure, who's connected to a really dodgy property developer. Now, these are kind of this is a network of kind of lowlifes that our heroes get caught up with. Now, there is still uh, a hunt for the major sort of bad guy terrorists who are lurking out there on the, but they tend to be on the periphery of this story. And I just can't get to them. And the only clues they have, because the thing they're seeking, this data stick, gets caught up. Uh, Russian guy's taking it to Tel Aviv to try and sell. He gets, uh, he gets in a collision with a taxi. The taxi driver gets the stick. The taxi driver doesn't know what to do with it. He's a kid. He's in debt. He's just a kid. He has a bad brother. He deals drugs. He says, hey, we can do something with this data stick. Well, who's, who's going to help us? Well, what about Mr. Big? What about the bad guy who runs the kind of property development? Yeah. And so you can see our strike backers have to chase through this morass of low life, bad stuff in the sort of edges of this city to get to their target, to get what they want. And along the way, yeah, one of them gets caught up very badly with this team of bad guys and gets in a lot of trouble. That'll be Novin, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, so far, so far, so I'm excited. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a great trip to get because it feels like it's off the beaten track uh, in that I guys don't normally get caught up in these kind of peripheral characters. You just set our hair running. We usually have a super, super bad, bad guys. Uh, and we chase them around whatever continent we happen to be in uh, with all sorts of uh, headaches and obstacles in the way. But this time it's a little bit more messy in a good way, I think. Yeah, messy is an understatement. I mean, we <laughs> came up with some even newer ways of killing people. <laughs> <laughs> was that Jack or was that you or was that a combination? All of it. I mean, the beauty of it is now we know each other. You know, some of us are new to the game each season and some of us are like the old timers. Uh, and for once, I'm happy to be called an old timer because it means <laughs> I can sit in the office with my executive producer, Nulo O'Leary, and Jack comes into town and we can say, and Jack will throw, you know, I'll be sitting at a table and he'll say, Bill, Bill, what, what if, what if, what if? I say, yeah, wow, that's a good idea. That, that reminds me of this. And have you heard of this thing that happened to somebody we saw in the news? You know, and we can, and there is a little bit of interplay. Now, Jack, he's the, he's the captain of the ship. He steers us through the choppy waters and past the icebergs and into the whatever it is and past the whirlpools. And he drives the story, but he's up for that kind of input and that kind of banter. And that for G, that keeps the stuff fresh and it keeps us all excited. I mean, it's genuinely exciting. You know, what if what if they torture Novin like this? Oh, yeah, but what if they torture like that? Because that reminds us of something bad to <laughs> a character in a previous yeah. right? And we can beat the crap out of that and that'll be cool and yeah you know so that's how it goes yeah the plastic bag was rough that was real rough <laughs> and you can't beat that i mean you know that i mean you can say it's a it's not really a stunt it's a real bag and you know there's no air when you're trying to breathe through plastic so alan's taking it we're all judging it you know we we did all the safety checks that you'd expect we know the timings we get, you know, Alan gets used to it, and uh, and the guy doing the holding the bag, you know, he's got it. He's a guest, you know, our uh, our new super bad guy. So it's a matter of trust between those members of the cast. But I mean, they all want to make it look super real, and they push it. Yeah, that was that yeah. was scary. That was very very real. That was. Yeah. No, I felt out of breath just watching it. Yeah, yeah, and a ginger baddie. Yay! Ginger baddie, isn't he wonderful? <laughs> 
I know, I know. He's just, he's to die for. When he came into the casting, it was like, wow. You know what I mean? You meet maybe five or six guys who you think might be appropriate. The casting director brings them in. And this guy just popped and popped and popped and double popped, you know? And My blood uh, pressure went up every time he came on screen. He was just yeah. menacing, absolutely yeah. menacing. I mean, he's, you know, and he's this, of course, you know, he probably have heard this before, but it's the truth. He was the sweetest, sweetest guy to work with. Right. I mean, he's acting. <laughs> we know that. That's what he's ready to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's just super sweet and polite. And he hasn't done a lot of stuff in front of a camera. You know, he's, wow. he's, he's a bit of a performer. He's a DJ, has a band. He does various things. He's a natural performer. Mm -hmm. He hasn't done a lot of uh, TV and film roles. I think he will in the future. Yeah, uh, he smashed it. Yeah. And part of the reason he was so great was he was so ordinary looking. You yeah. did not expect him to suddenly just go full on psycho. And what a great casting choice. Um, uh, and full on psycho can be a bit of a graveyard for actors. I mean, you can you can go full on psycho in a good way and you can go on full on psycho in a way that's like, uh-uh. Yeah. Uh, this double thumbs up. Yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah, he was great. So, you know, of course we want to ask you about the winner yeah. because you did last season what I think still will be the best one shot I've ever seen on TV. I mean, it was... <laughs> phenomenal and this was phenomenal but i mean it it was different because you're going through multi-levels yeah, yeah, yeah. as you're shooting so can you talk about i mean to me that's like insane but i guess you have to step it up after last season so how did you set that up here's the thing. so last season uh the whole idea of the one that came up and we had a shanty town with our soldiers now shanty town is like almost your perfect one kind of a, because you can keep moving around and come to a different space and a more dangerous space and have a vehicle go faster and you can keep the journey going with all sorts of potential for surprises and scares and shocks along the way uh and it's almost kind of unlimited in where you can take your characters in a shanty town and but this time we're inside an apartment building so you can kind of go into one room along a corridor now then you can go upstairs or downstairs and down a corridor and into another room and maybe go upstairs or downstairs. So you can imagine straight away, you've got restrictions and limitations as to how you can continue that journey and keep it fresh. Because if you take any characters down one corridor, you can't really take them back down there because you've sort of dealt with the forces of antagonism down that corridor. You know, all the the, the, the guys with knives and swords and guns, you, you pass them. So, so you have to kind of, you know, work out exactly how you get your character to kind of sustain the journey and to create those shifts in rhythm so it's run fight reveal think run fight or fight run and, uh, and and you've got to create a bit of story you know to justify that so we're saying in this apartment building there's a place where Novin uh, i hear is is imprisoned and when she breaks free of that this this apartment building has kind of regular people living in it people on the edge for sure uh but kind of refugees and kind of people who would be homeless otherwise People are down in their luck, and she bumps into this one woman kind of laying her table for supper. And she bursts in there, having taken down a guy with a huge machete and chopped him to pieces. And she goes in there for a brief respite and to maybe make a phone call to get in touch with uh, her buddies. And two other guys with giant knives come at her uh, and, and so on. So we kind of keep, uh, we have to be inventive with the stories we tell and the way we use these spaces. I mean, the one thing that apartment building had that, was, that made it successful is it, it did have that kind of maze-like journey. You could go down a corridor in a room, round the back of the room, come back out in the corridor, go down the stairs, and then again you can go down a corridor in one room, round the back of that room, 
and then come into another room, come back in the corridor, go back up the stairs. And that again, that gave us that kind of quality that the uh, that the the, the, the shanty town did. And I would also, I mean, you know, I would doff my cap to Atomic Blonde because uh, there's a movie which takes place in an apartment building on the staircase without giving away too many secrets. I did kind of watch that sequence a few times <laughs> before we staged our own. And then again, and to make it work, I, I don't have to get the camera from here to there, there to here. We've only got so many spaces. So Jack and I walk the course together. So we're kind of writing okay. it and I'm directing it and he's writing and feeding into where the camera can go. And so it, the, the final script for that comes out of about three or four visits of that location with Jack, with the cinematographer, working out what our narrative is that gets a character from here to there, to there, to there, back again. You mentioned it, um, Atomic Blonde, but there's no way that you can watch that entire sequence without thinking of The Raid. Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, it was such an homage to a film that we absolutely love. We reviewed it over the summer, and we're, I, I think the, our entire review was on level 10. We were just so excited by this movie. So was that an intentional homage? Was it, were you thinking more Atomic Blonde, or? I think the truth is because of, you know, the seat I sit in, uh, you know, what am I going to soak up uh, before getting into, going back to a new season strike back? I look at the kind of territory and the terrain we're going to be in. The Raid is like, it's kind of a Bible for us. You know, it's kind of like, you know, The Raid was the movie that kind of made that stuff super concentrated, supercharged in its own way. And, you know, on a relatively low budget and shot in a hurry. Well, we're not on the biggest budget in the world and we certainly shoot in a hurry. Uh, so there are <laughs> certain things that were done in The Raid that we that are within the realm of possibilities that Strike Back operates in. We can't do what Bond does. You know, we, we, we'd love to, but we have limitations and they have to do with time and money. That's fine. That's always a, a good place to be as a filmmaker. It's quite challenging. So yeah, The Raid is core, core reference material for us. And what's interesting about The Raid, I think, I mean, Atomic Blonde took us up and down an apartment building. So geographically, it was useful. But the way The Raid dealt, deals out its violence is so inventive. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that when nobody's threatened with a guy with a you know three foot long machete blade, she gets her belt and she uses that to get down his yes. head and then and then to disarm him. I mean, that's brilliant. You know, machete versus mm -hmm. belt and belt wins. I mean, not always, but in our show, we've never been doing it. It does. And hats off to Alan for her ex, you know her dedication. I mean, when we worked out the trajectory, she's got to work out how to pull that fight off and the choreography that goes into that and the rehearsal time. And the sheer gymnastic ability, fight ability, it's almost like a dance, as I'm sure you know. I mean, when I talk about choreography, uh, there's a dance kind of element to it. But when she throws herself into it, man, she doesn't hold back. She goes to broke. And on top of that, she has to act with our guest villains who are going to pop up. So it's a hell of a team effort, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's not straightforward. But where there's a will, there's a way. And we have the right people to do it. And they put it together. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh my God, just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's mind blowing to know. So how many times were you able to run through or, or like how many shots did it take for the one shot? Well, is that giving away the secrets of you know, tricks of the trade? I don't know if it is. I think there's about four shots in there. Because <laughs> uh -huh. the truth is you've got, you all know, join, right? That's the secrets out. Everybody knows that. Um, I don't know how many, uh, it's interesting. In, in 1917, I was looking for how many, uh, um, to break it down into this. Uh -huh, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, and Sam Mendes is a fantastic film director, obviously using some of the same tricks we do. You can, mm -hmm. you can do a secret edit in a one-up 
on a whip pad. Blah, blah. You can do yeah. a secret edit on a one by going in and out of a dark space where the light changes from bright to dark and so on. And you can find a place to match cut. And you can do it on going through a doorway, perhaps, or something like that. So, so there are various kind of ways of doing it. Uh, and you know, one doesn't want to break it down too much because then you lose that spontaneity and you lose the energy. Uh, but at the same time, if you know you've got a super complicated move, and this time, because we've been up and down the stairs, camera operator, Steve Murray, cinematographer, camera operator, it's much, much harder you know, to go backwards down a stairwell and look yeah. down a stairwell than it is to run through a, uh, a shandy town on county ground level. Wow. Mm -hmm. So the chances of us having a little glitch here or a little bump, and those little glitches and bumps, they can really take the edge of it. They can kind of take you out of the shot. So it was important to break it down, one, for manageability, two, because the cinematographer operator had a harder job, uh, and three, also to make sure that it was that the, the, the cast themselves were able to get their best performance. Because in some of those moments, you know, you've got massive fight, land up, up, you know, a fall, you've got a hit against a wall, you've got a stunt hit, you've got blood spurting. Um, you know, the, the cast need to breathe and just recover for a second before you move on to the next section. But the, and that's another interesting thing, obviously, that you're, you're a plot in the middle of a bloody fight. Mm -hmm. I use that as a, an adjective. You understand I'm not using a cuss word there. You have to spray blood on characters. This one camera's off them, put blood on them so when you come back, or they have to adjust and so on. So you have to adjust the blood and the makeup. Now, creating an invisible edit helps you uh, do that with a little bit more finesse than if you're just throwing somebody in the stand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is the fun, I tell you, you know. Uh, and we do, we do kind of punch the air at the end of those days. And we do on other days as well sometimes. But you know, filmmaking can be tough, it can be cold, it can be rainy, it can be all these things, it can be tiring, there can be too much work to do. But on those days, there's a sort of sense of we're going to conquer this. Here we are, beginning of the day, we know what we've got to do. Are we ready? Let's go, you know, and it's very exciting. Yeah. It's hard to believe that every day on set isn't like that <laughs> <Yeah>. with you. There's <laughs> <laughs> more stuff coming up in episodes 9 and 10, which I was happy to be invited to direct in, uh, in the course of last year. So wait till you see some. We've got some we got a big finale coming out, that's all I can say about that. But, uh, yeah. We're looking forward to it. So can you talk a little bit about, so I think one of the things that's so interesting about Strike Back is you guys shoot, you know, on these crazy locations, and then you turn those locations into multiple locations. So turning yeah, yeah. Croatia into Tel Aviv, how does that happen? Well, it happened with a lot of, a lot of uh, travel. I mean, the one thing that Tel Aviv has that we were based in the center of Croatia in the city of Zagreb, the capital, which is a beautiful historic East European town with a beautiful historic district and cobble streets and gas lights. And man, it's, <laughs> you couldn't find a place that looks less like Tel Aviv. You know? So what does Tel Aviv have? It's on the ocean. So we had to go down to the Croatian coast and the Croatian coast. And this is the middle of summer or heading towards summer. We were shooting in June. It's kind of busy because a lot of people like to go there for tourist reasons because it's beautiful. It's, it's relatively, you know, it's not too expensive and you can swim in the sea. It's crystal clear Mediterranean. Oh, it's not Mediterranean, it's the Adriatic. Anyway, point being, so we had to find places on the ocean that were practical to shoot in that weren't going to be absolutely mobbed with tourists and had qualities that told us uh, that we could be on the edge of the Mediterranean rather than on the edge of the Adriatic, you know, in, in Croatia. So it's a lot of research and you just get a strip of land you know, that's maybe, I don't know, 500 meters. So uh, it's a jigsaw puzzle. And we just, we found just enough spots where we thought we could pull it off. We weren't spoiled for choice. 
because most of Croatia, funnily enough, looks like Croatia. <laughs> to do that, uh, and uh, no, but so we 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 spent a lot of time, and then and then you know we were told that we were we were close to shooting, and the, the, the being issues with the weather, as we know worldwide, the weather's going bonkers, and we were told there would be wind and there would be rain, and when we got there. It, when some of those scouts we went on, when we were in prep, we were like, so much rain, you could only just see ahead, a little bit ahead in the vehicle we were driving. Oh and this is, this kind of doesn't feel very television. No. <laughs> uh, so, and when we got there for the, the week of the shooting, man, the movie gods were on our side. The skies went blue, the sun came out, and we got that sort of dazzling, crisp, yeah. super Mediterranean light, that feeling of heat and the dust of the med. Uh, and that was a massive, massively kind of good thing. And that was something you can't plan. You can, you can try and plan for it. You can't predict it. But we found the right spots, and then we got the light, and then it all came together. Yeah, it certainly did. I mean, as soon as that shot came up to establish where they were, you felt the warmth. You know, it really was, and it was so. It was stunning. It was just. It was beautiful. It really. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was kind of. It was very nice to be there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a little break from last year. <laughs> oh yeah, Malaysia is very tough. The Croatia was beautiful, and uh, yeah, they do really good fish there as well. Uh, <laughs> they have a lot of restaurants. Uh, it was so in and amongst all the hard work and the shooting, we had our moments of rewards and relaxation as well. But yeah, you know, it's, it's a tough. It's a tough show. And um, and you need and it is you know and with the old hands we're used to it we know the deal, but when we go to a new territory we're bringing along a lot of people from that country who we bring on as crew, and sometimes we're bringing them on as interns and we're giving them experience that they haven't always had before, and we have to take them with us on our journey. And we are a fact when you get on our train you don't get off. Uh, it's a fast moving thing and it kind of rattles along and it's kind of stay on hold on tight here we go. And we had brilliant support from the people that we recruited. Roundabout as I grabbed from Croatian, the Croatian teams, the extras, the crew, <clears throat> technicians, we couldn't have made it without them. So uh, that's another side of it. Well, another huge aspect of Block Two was Yaz coming back, Katrina oh, Zarkova. Yeah. How fun was that? Well, you know, I mean, I remember way back when we first uh, were looking for that, uh, an actress play that part. And I remember Yas coming into the casting. So, I mean, that, I go back with Yas for the very first time she came into a casting. So, and I was, you know, I voted for her right from the get go. I mean, it wasn't hard, you know, it wasn't a hard decision yeah. for all of us. I think we were all on board with Yas. We just had to, you know, push through and make sure <clears throat> she was happy with the deal. And we were happy with the deal, but we kind of felt in our bones. Again, it was one of those moments when somebody comes into a casting and it kind of pops. So, so I had that great history. I was the first person to work with her last season, not, you know, this, not this new season previously in Malaysia and so on. And, um, and that was the light. So she and I had a lot of trust and a lot of admiration I have for her and what she can do. And she's just, she, you know, she, when she walks into a scene, she, uh, she has a habit of kind of just being, you know, somebody you want to look at, you can't take your eyes off her. And I like the way she came back in this time with a real edge about her relationship with our core strike backers. There was friction there. There was tension between the core, our core team, <coughs> and between her and Coltrane for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. So not only have you got a great female fighting, super strong soldier character, but you've got somebody who brings with baggage from the backstory to make life hard for the team to coalesce. Whenever our team is struggling to get on with each other, I always think it's the best show. 
when they're all pointing in the same direction and shooting and everything's going terribly well for them, it's exciting. But it's always more interesting when they've got to overcome those personal difficulties and those character wrinkles that means they rub up against each other. Because you've got all that going on, then you've got to go into battle and decide if you can save each other's lives or not. And if it's one character who you're really not sure you can totally trust, and that's Yaza's character was last year, and it is again this year. I won't give too much away, but uh, there's a moment when it looks like she's completely betrayed her colleagues and the team. Uh, I have to say, it's not quite as straightforward as that. Hard to believe it was only two episodes that she was in, and I have my fingers crossed that maybe she's going to come back, but yeah. we'll see. Because, I mean, it really was a pretty epic arc for her in just those two episodes. You know, she goes, we're so excited to see her, and then maybe she's betrayed them, and then just a gruesome death of her. <laughs> Whatever that guy was, her so-called partner on that op. Yeah. Um, how much input did you have into sort of deciding, because there were a lot of stunts, a lot of gruesome stunts based around her in this um arc did you have a lot of input in how that was going to go or yeah i mean i get i mean are you talking about the fights and the battles and the, the... the fights and the battles yeah, and the... yeah. i mean i worked with, with, with the uh you know with our stunt coordinator and we're always trying to keep the fights fresh and keep them real you know the minute you see a stunt guy sort of roll over and do a somersault in a fight you're gonna yeah yeah you see that it's got to look like when they hit the rock it's a hard rock and they take a hit when they hit the floor that they're, they're winded, that it, there's a consequence to that. In real life, of course, we protect them and they protect themselves and there's all sorts. But that's the trick is to make it look as hard and as ugly as possible to be in that fight. And the cast want that too. So if you've got that goodwill and you've got the right sort of stunt coordinator, then it's a matter of how do we, what is the, what is the rough and tough end of this? What, is, what are they gonna be impacted with? What are the weapons they're gonna use? Uh, what are the weapons that are going to be used against them? What's the real jeopardy here? How close can we get to actually keeping it safe and making it look hellish dangerous? And um, that's the game we're in, you know. And, if, and I have to, it's a weird thing, but as a director, if you're looking at the monitor and you see somebody, and, uh, and I'm happy to say this has never happened real, but you think somebody's been hurt because the punch is thrown so well, or the knife it seems to have stabbed them so successfully. Sometimes you're waiting for the end of the take to check they're okay, but then you know you've got you've got what you came to get, because that's the illusion. That's the illusion we have to create, that that person who was punched was really hit, that that really hurt, that that knife really stabbed that person, you know, that bullet really blew that person's head off. You know, that's the illusion we're trying to create. That's, our, that's part of our kind of the film grammar that we're working with there. And uh, yeah, so I have a lot of input in making sure that we, the techniques and the tricks we use will deliver something which we believe will satisfy the audience's need for a sense of authenticity. Uh, uh, and, and also, we're looking for moments in the fights which enhance the storytelling, which actually work with the story. What would the character do to, to escape that jeopardy? What would a character do to successfully conquer that antagonist? And that's how we, you know, we're thinking about that all the time. I have to say, one of the things I've liked, I, I really liked about this episode, this block, was the sound. <clears throat> there were some fantastic sounds in this block that just really amped up the action and yeah. amped up the gross factor. Of things. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know how much you worked with the sound people oh, yeah, on this, but I mean, dang, you know, it was good. Well, everything from the click of the guns and the loading of the guns, that metallic kind of noise, all the bullet hits, the sound of the bullets going and so on. 
But then the thwax, you know, hand on face, head on rock, body on floor, not, you know, consequence of knife and stab. I mean, those are areas which that stuff, you know, I mean, that's daddy, what did you do today? Well, I had to work out how to make it sound that that throat was really getting cut or that guy was actually getting impaled uh -huh. on a kind of pole, you know? Uh, and how much blood do we want him to drip out the mouth? You know, because we're saying, well, let's work out. If that had gone in here, uh, that either destroyed his organs here, that the blood would have come out here and it dribbled some blood there. And, and then, you know, you're figuring that out. And then, then some guy comes up to you. want to hear it drip? Oh, you can hear it drip, Bill. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so that, I mean, you know, it is, yeah, there there, are, I'm sure there are worse jobs to do. I really love it. I mean, I love these are the kind of decisions. And then some guy comes up to me after lunch. And funnily enough, in pyrotechnics, it's usually a guy who says, so big, how, so Bill, how big do you want the fireball? And it's like, really big, is <laughs> uh, actually the standard answer. But it, also you're thinking, is it a grenade? Has it blown up the fuel tank in the uh -huh. vehicle? Is it actually imploded with a missile store? You don't want to just go crazy. You want to kind of be measured. But at the same time, we want to kind of push it as far as we can so that the show has its kind of signature feeling of being bigger than it ought to be and being kind of scarier than it ought to be and just being, you know, a kind of epic military adventure series. Oh, I was just saying it is very epic. So we talked to Fraser McDonald about last season and he was talking about a missile, you know, like showing up to the missile silo and being told he's going to be shooting a model and then he shows up and he's like, this thing is <laughs> like giant, you know, like this is a, a strike yeah, back yeah, yeah. model yeah. that's like almost life size, you know, but yeah, it's very epic. I'm wondering if just really quick you could talk in general about working with the cast, in particular Dan and Warren and Alin, because you've worked with them now for three years and sort of what yeah. you have seen as growth from them. Well, I think they've grown into their characters. Uh, I think anybody watching the show from the outset of this this particular new uh, new cast will recognize that. And it, what's wonderful about it is that I think they've become more comfortable in their own skin, inhabiting those characters and interacting with each other. Kind of, and it tracks kind of how it would have been in in real life, it, as per the story, that these soldiers were brought together who didn't know each other in difficult situations. And there was tension and unease. That was in season one. And in season two, they're getting to know each other a little bit. And so we do track that sort of sense of them being the camaraderie, the bonds between them, the tensions between them. We track that uh, as it's going on behind the camera and in front. Uh, I would say in general terms, though, we're talking more about the camaraderie and the bonding than the tension because this, guy, these, this team know what they're there to do. They come in, man, I'm a lucky director. They come in absolutely word perfect they've done the prep they've worked together sometimes they'll spend hang out in the hotel rooms the night before to run lines and all that kind of thing so they're coming in ready ready for action and action it, it truly is so it's a delight and i think the wonderful kind of con contrast between warren's personality and dan's i mean you just have to look at the guys and listen to them talk to understand these guys comes from sort of opposite ends of the known sort of soldier male macho universe and so there's a natural kind of fighting instinct between them in the in the course of kind of trying to do work anything out but when they have to fight together they're a lethal combination now alan alan is like it's hard to explain what alan is like because she i've never come across anybody like her except you know she is just a joy to work with because they call her short stuff in the show because she's whatever height she is but she's not the tallest woman on our set and she fights like a tiger within that short stuff physique 
there is more fighty energy, I think, almost than in some of the bigger guys. I mean, she's a force of nature, and you see it. At the same time, she's a sensitive actor. She'll understand the nuances of her role. And there's a moment, uh, I won't go into details, where there's tragedy kind of uh, meets uh, our cast, and we will see moments where she will be uh, suffering, uh, uh, suffering greatly, huge emotional uh, distress for the, the character that she plays. And Ali nails it every time. I mean, the other guys will do that as well. I don't know why I'm particularly singling Ali out, except I think there's a couple of scenes I remember where that was a real feature. I think I'm contrasting the fact that she can be a ball of muscle and energy and incredibly well-disciplined fighting choreography. And at the same time, she has that reach to come out with emotional complexity when it's required. But what a cast. All, I mean, the three you mentioned there, uh, what a gift and to see them work together, um, to see them. And I love it when you just see them in the crib and they're just joshing and just taking, having a go and just pulling the rug from the other one and just making it a little jab and a little jab. And you know that that's, that's about the bond thing. That's about the, the camaraderie. And you feel that, you know, whilst we know we're a soldier, it's an action show, it's a TV show, it's not real life. We feel that, you know, from all the research we've done, is that there is dark humor, there is gallows humor for people who have to put their lives in jeopardy, for who, who depend on each other in these situations. And, uh, and we have a military advisors on set who've worked in special ops, who've done that job. And they will often comment on the fact that the, those sort of dark exchanges, those kind of rather grim bits of humor that the, the, the team kind of play against each other reflect the experience that our uh, uh, real soldiers who advise us reflect the experience that they have had as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, a st uh, just a statement for me on, on the cast. I mean, you, there was that incredible bond between the three of them. And then you brought in the two people who just naturally seem to join in in Jamie and Verada are yeah. just, you know, there's it, it's hard to believe that they were brought in only last season. And know, because they feel like such a great fit, like they've always been there. I, I know. I mean, Jamie Bamba, bless him. I worked with him on Battlestar way back. So I know Jamie. And uh, we hadn't worked together for a while. And then the, the part came up. And I was, again, you know, I was the only one on the team, but I was a massively strong advocate to get Jamie in for that role. When he came in, I didn't know if he'd want to do your job, he was busy or whatever. And it turned out he, uh, he was interested and we did a casting. It's the same thing. Just, but so, you know, and his role's complex because he's got to be, he has this authority, the military bearing and the rest of it. Now, I remember even last year, the very first time Jamie was on set in that character in front of a camera, he had something like, it was a crib day. So he did, he has all the lines. He's mainly doing the talking and listening and talking, talking, and listening. And he had something like 15 pages of script to learn, broken up into something like, I think it was like eight scenes. And we had 10 hours to do it in. We may have gone an hour over, but he was like on it from the get go. He straight out the box. He was like, he was, uh, he nailed that character. He knew exactly what he was there to do. And in a way, that's interesting because that's kind of how Coltrane would be, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I really think that's sort of interesting. And and Verada. So, you know, in, in some ways, what is, you know, what if you looked at it, if you looked at the reductive version of, Redard, of Verada's kind of role in the show, it's a look at screens and report information. So why how does she manage to do it with humor, with charm, with wit? with pathos. How does she manage to do that? Because she's a damn good actress, that's why. Right, yeah. She gets the most you could possibly get out of that stuff. And we're gonna take her on a journey throughout the course of this season. And we're gonna see way, way more of that than anybody has got even close to seeing so far. You've only seen the tip of the iceberg when it mm -hmm. comes to what Verada can do. Yeah, 
and I can't wait because I love Cheddar's. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. absolutely love yeah. her because yeah, she's, you know, she, she's the comms person. She's the computer geek. And she's also a serious badass who just yeah. learn, you can see her learning and becoming more of a soldier every episode in every scene that she has. She's just so good. I mean, what a team. Yeah, the, what the casting directors yeah. put together. Yeah. But, um, and I think we put them through the paces on this season. I mean, we really do, you know, it's always said, you know, if you, you to make a good movie, you take a heroic character, a male or female, you throw a rock at them, throw another rock at them, bigger rock, bigger rock, until they finally sort of manage to fight back and stop. And that's kind of, we are throwing rocks at our guys uh, of all shapes and sizes this season. And man, do they need to, uh, to, yeah. to fight back and they find the, the guts to do that. I'm wondering, you've, you know, you've been with the show basically since the beginning and every episode we get from you ramps it up and ramps it up and ramps it up. It's like, whenever I see your name on the list of who is, you know, casting crew, oh, Bill, okay, we're going to get something even bigger. Yes, the bar is being raised. And, you know, you ended, it wasn't the end, but that massive explosion from Zarkova's shot was, damn, that was good. Was I'm big. wondering, was there anything that you really wanted to do or try that you never got to do on Strike Back? Well, I always wanted to have uh, a big helicopter chase, uh, maybe you know, in, in a in a, a gorge kind of akin to the Grand Canyon with a sort of with a jet. But oh, hang on a minute, we did that. <laughs> we're, we're doing that in the final block. <laughs> so, back hasn't got me down yet. That's awesome. I love that. Well, it's all phenomenal. And, and we cannot wait to see uh, what comes next. So we'll, we'll wrap. I know we're kind of uh, edging on taking up a lot of your time. But we want to wrap. We always ask everybody because Deb got this question from Philip Winchester. And he said the thing he yeah. likes to ask because he said you go through Strike Back is this very difficult slog. But you kind of look back on it with rose-colored glasses. So if you could tell us sort of for the, you know, for the season, your highs and your lows. Uh, well, I think the highs is getting called back. I mean, you might, I've done a lot of them, but you still, you know, it, there's no deal done until the deal is done. And it's like, I was busy at the beginning of the year and I had to, I, I wasn't, didn't know I was going to be available and they didn't know who was going to be doing what. And then there was a moment when this call comes through and it's like, look, with the slots open, uh, we, I just finished a job and all the kind of the planets came together and it's like, yes, the team's back together. So there's the high of just getting the call and knowing at a time when you're kind of available and, and it just works because, you know, do various other things and all the rest of it. Um, lows. Lows are really, really few and far between. I mean, I just love going. The thing about Strikeback, I can say from the bottom of my heart, and I do talks in schools with kids as well, they kind of motivate them to get into the business. And I always talk about working on strike back. I say, one of the crucial things in my life that I have to share with you is I, when I get up in the morning, I enjoy going to work. I look forward to going to work, you know? And sometimes I'm supposed to get up at 6 a.m. and I wake at five, whatever it is, because I'm still, I'm excited about getting up and going to work. And uh, if you can say that about, you know, the, the, the job we, we work to earn money, to pay our bills, to house us, to look after our kids, to do other things. So work seems to be something that most of us have to confront most of the time somewhere in our lives. And if you can actually be one of the people who say, I love going to work, <laughs> then you're truly blessed and lucky, I think. And uh, so for right now, 
what I would say is the highs are some of the best I've ever had in my filmmaking uh, business with stripebacks, lows. I don't remember very many of those. <laughs> There's those rose-colored glasses that <laughs> Philip talks about. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, and tune in next week for another need-to-know session at the Crib. Follow us on Twitter, at Strike Back Crib. Out. Out.